As I stand before you this morning, how thankful we each can be to be able by God to gather as we have today. What a beautiful Lord's Day morning it is. What a blessedness from so many perspectives. And my family and I are delighted to be back with you today. For all your prayers, your encouragement that you have shared with us in the gospel meeting efforts, we are so appreciative and thankful. I know many of you chose to come at least one night to the services at Union Hill, and we're delighted that you came. Your support, your encouragement, so greatly appreciated. And it's a blessing we can each be back here today, isn't it? At this point, as you think about the nature of our Bible reading throughout this year, we do come today to perhaps our first observation that we can certainly make. And that is highlighted at the very beginning of this next slide. We've now crossed the halfway point in our Bible reading through this year, 615 chapters. A little less than 52% of the Word of God we have read, and we currently are reading in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. And as you will find tonight, our reading in the Old Testament brings us to 2 Kings. And so the lesson tonight will be drawn from the ninth chapter of 2 Kings. You may notice on that slide as well, and you probably noticed in the title as well as the reading that Brother Jonathan read a moment ago, having to do with the baptism unto Moses. I'd invite you this morning to think with me about topics that begin like this. We are aware as students of the Word of God that baptism is an extraordinarily significant thing. It's vital. It's often mentioned in the Word of God. But it's also a topic fraught with controversy. There are many that have questions concerning it. In so doing, you might appreciate not the least of which the phrases that occur in the Bible. There are times we encounter the baptism of John the Baptist. And there are times we encounter the baptism unto Moses like we noticed in our reading this morning. In all those cases, I would suggest that perhaps we could utilize our time this morning to look at these passages, appreciating those baptisms, and to begin it with a discussion like this. You'll notice, if you would, on this next slide. I've entitled it, the word confusing with a question mark following it. You and I know that we're admonished, are we not, to study, to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. It is with that verse as a powerful foundation. I would invite you to look at this. The word baptize, or some form of it, occurs 101 times in the King James Bible. The very first occurrence is in Matthew 3, verse 6, in which we read about John the Baptist baptizing in the Jordan River. The very last occurrence is 1 Peter 3, 21, where it says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Those two and every one of the occurrences in between offer for us some considerations, not the least of which are these. Hebrews 6, verse 2 puts it like this. You may begin in verse 1 of that chapter where the Hebrew writer says, Therefore, not laying again the foundation of those elementary principles. That is to say, as you and I strive to move on into perfection, he says in reference to not studying again about the doctrine of baptisms. I ask you to note that. It is interesting that word is plural. It's as if there were many particular baptisms in the mind of the inspired Hebrew writer. But that particular matter directly challenges us related to the text before us. What are these baptisms, plural, to which that verse has reference? I would list for you at least a few, and you and I noticed some of them a moment ago. The baptism of John the Baptist, 
the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism that you and I see in water and perhaps this baptistry behind me, that's just a few. And you and I notice this doctrine of baptisms is apparently considered an elementary thing. And you and I as mature Christians should desire to move onward to more powerful, stronger, more challenging meat. That takes on a heightened consideration when you ask the following. Maybe it would be entirely useful for you and me to look at those baptisms and describe them as follows. Who administered them? What was the design of it? Who were the subjects of each one of them? And furthermore, as you can well appreciate, what about the nature of who was subject to it? We'll try to look at this morning at several biblical baptisms, highlighting the nature of those questions in relation to each one. But now, from the point of what is confusing to some, we noted a moment ago this doctrine of baptisms. Paul said in Ephesians 4, 5, There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. How do you and I understand this? One inspired writer, Paul, says there's only one baptism. This Hebrew writer says there are many of them. How do we understand the nature then of what Paul said? What is the one that he referred to there? And how is it different from the others that you and I find mentioned in the New Testament? I hope this morning we can unravel that and appreciate the presentation of the book of God relative to these baptisms. As we do so, let's begin with this one. John the Baptist. The first one I would invite your attention was in fact related to this. As we start answering those questions that we have just raised, who administered this baptism? That is to say, who is the one, the officiant, if you please, in regard to those baptized beneath the authority of this baptism of John the Baptist? We might begin in Mark chapter 1, verse number 4. It there says, John did baptize in the wilderness. You and I remember it was in locations where there was much water. We find then that individual who performed this baptism was then the authority vested in John the Baptist. He was the individual recognized on that placement and a number of other passages as well. You can also appreciate that the element that he utilized for the baptism was water. You and I remember that certainly he himself said in Mark 1.8, I have baptized you in water. But you'll notice it was places where there was much water, John 3.23. And so as John the Baptist immersed individuals, and this might be an appropriate opportunity to notice, that that word baptize or its noun form baptism, it literally means to plunge beneath, it means to immerse, and so there's no question about the nature of what the word means. It really is a burial, isn't it? And that's the way Paul defined it in, in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. You'll go beyond that, though, and notice that who were those that were supposed to give heed to this baptism of John the Baptist? Well, you notice it was directly given at first to those that were Jews who had believed and had repented. As they came flooding out of the Jerusalem and Judean area and came to John to be baptized of him in Jordan, they had come, according to Matthew 3, verses 7 and following, to have a belief. But you may remember that John required an element in, in, in repentance, didn't he? He said, Bring forth fruits, therefore meet or worthy of repentance. 
And only then would he, of course, proceed with assisting them in that way that he did. As you appreciate that matter with me, we might immediately observe that baptism was not intended to be a permanent thing. It was not to last, if you please, unto the end of the age. Didn't John himself say, speaking of Christ, He must increase and I must decrease, John 3 verse 30. Surely we appreciate then the very last statement. That baptism, in a sense, it wasn't intended to be permanent. It is no longer in effect. In fact, we find that in the book of Acts, do we not? There in Acts chapter 18, that gentleman named Apollos, he knew only the baptism of John the Baptist in Acts 18, verses 22 and following. And yet Aquila and Priscilla expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. He came to know the baptism, of course, under the authority of Jesus. In the very next chapter, Acts 19, beginning in verse 1, Paul encountered 12 individuals in Ephesus who had only been baptized under John the Baptist. We remember they were baptized, of course, in verses 6 and 7 in relation to, of course, the nature of Christ. This baptism is no longer in effect today. It has passed forever into the matter of history. It was effective for the time in which God had intended it to be. That brings us to another baptism. What about that reference we find from the lips of Jesus Himself about the baptism of suffering? Consider that one with me for just a few moments. And let's ask similar questions to those we have done before. Who administered it? Who brought this suffering about? The text informs us in places like Luke 12, verses 49 and following, that this one was due to the activities of the human family. Men would be the ones that would bring suffering in the way Jesus spoke. Let's be, look on to the next one. The element, as you can well imagine were trials and afflictions and hardships and sufferings. And many times the Lord cautioned His own followers that these would be natural byproducts of their devotion to Him. Look at these verses with me if you would. That should read Matthew 10, 38. My apology there. Matthew 10, verses 38 and following makes reference to Jesus as He made statement that, "...I came not to bring peace but to bring a sword." Father will be against son, mother will be against daughter. Even we appreciate as the Lord made that description that there would be a hatred between the world and those that were the very followers of Christ. That would be descriptive of, or at least in relation to, this baptism of suffering. That suffering highlighted by noting the subjects. Who were the ones that would experience it? Isn't it true? The disciples of the Lord. And we'll find in a moment especially those that were the apostles. But look with me at these verses in Philippians 1.29. Paul, as he wrote to the Philippian congregation, to these brethren, he especially told them that not only has it been given to us to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for His sake. There will be suffering that will be in relation to the nature of following the Master. As we noted earlier, the nature of those apostles... It seems they clearly had an understanding of what would be demanded at least in their later efforts toward Him. Look at those verses like 1 Corinthians 4 verses 9 and following. Paul gave an extended description about that which was the lot of the apostles. We, he said, are the offscouring of the, of the world. We are regarded as the filth of the earth. 
Among those other things, he says, we are the ones that are fools for Christ. We are the ones that are so despised. We, the apostles, are the ones that are looked upon with such disfavor. Those apostles often had a very difficult way of suffering, didn't they? You'll notice that baptism then to which Jesus spoke brings us to appreciate these last statements relative to that one. What about the design of this suffering? We've already learned it was to come on those that were the Lord's apostles and those that were His disciples, but it was brought about by the world's hatred for their way and their beliefs. These verses perhaps pinpoint that well. In John 15, verses 19 and following, not but a few hours before His own crucifixion, Jesus said, The world has hated me, and it will hate you too. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. That warning still sounds so powerfully thunderous even today, doesn't it? Isn't it still true that we often serve in a culture, in a society that frowns greatly upon the requirements of Christianity? May we appreciate then you and I may in fact suffer a part of this baptism of suffering, not in a way the apostles did, but you and I appreciate that to look at the last matter. Isn't it still true, though, that this issue of suffering does not relate directly to the ultimate matter of salvation? We, are, we as Christians are called upon to it, but nowhere do we find remission of sin attached to this matter of baptism of suffering. In fact, we'll find in just a moment several other references about the grandeur of this issue, and we're encouraged to it but we'll find that beneath one of these other descriptions in just a moment. What about our third one? So far, if Paul had said again, there is but one baptism, and surely in relation to salvation, it's not the baptism that we've just seen in suffering, and it's not the baptism of John the Baptist. Jonathan read earlier about the baptism of the Israelites. Let's consider that one next. Thirdly on our list... The baptism of the Israelites. The text before us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 directly asserted that they were baptized unto Moses. Let's answer the same questions about this one. It says they were baptized unto Moses, suggesting that Moses was the officiant. He was the administrator, if you will, of this baptism. And you'll notice that it also identifies that the elements were water and clouds. We see that as a beautiful reflection in our mind of what transpired relative to the life of the children of Israel. It says they were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the water. We remember that cloud that led them day by day. It was that cloud again that was respective of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we remember the element of water in which they passed through that Red Sea that had been parted for them. Apparently the reference on this occasion to those wonderful events. With those in mind, look at what comes next. Again, the context clearly identifies the subject for those Israelites. Those that were the descendants of Abraham through Jacob who had come out of Egyptian bondage. Nextly, what was the design of it? The context of 1 Corinthians identifies this. Paul uses those words as a powerful teaching tool. And he does it like this. Those that were their ancestors, he says, they were baptized into Moses in the water and the cloud. And it was a statement of God's provision and their commitment to Him. Their faithfulness was demanded. 
these avenues of that baptism, put them in position to be ever beneath the leadership and faithful followers of that which was the will of God. Obviously, Paul uses it as a teaching tool for the Corinthians. If you've been baptized under the present baptism, he says you too then should be faithful, powerful, and devoted followers. Not given to divisions, as they were, of course, in Corinth. Not given to the other problems that so plagued them. As he uses that, look at what was next. That baptism of the Israelites obviously occurred in the Old Testament. It is not still a matter of force today. So here's another baptism, though it was useful for understanding the Bible. It is not present and needful today for the salvation of anyone. Let us then look at what's next. We've looked at the first three. What about the baptism of fire? One by one, as we have looked at each one of them, we have found that it either is a matter not related to the powerful commandment of God for salvation today, or it has occurred in days in the past, or perhaps it's yet for time in the future. So far we have found no contradiction yet to this statement, there is one baptism. What about the baptism of fire? In Matthew chapter 3, we find a reference in which on that occasion a statement, a rather powerful one is found. John had of course asserted that he had baptized with water, but there cometh one after me who will baptize with fire and with the Holy Spirit. And there we have our first reference to the baptism of fire. What is this baptism of fire? Who will be its subjects? Well, notice John himself identified that the one who would be the administrator of this was none other than Jesus himself. That one who is more powerful than I, the one whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose, he will be the one to administer this baptism of fire. Whatever this refers to, man will not be the one doing it. Man will not be baptizing by fire. It will be the Lord himself. Let's look even further. As we have so far considered this, our next question surely is, what elements would be used? The name itself gives that away, doesn't it? The baptism of fire identifies that it's not water, it's not suffering. It is in fact fire that will be the element in which this baptism takes place. Fire. How often do you and I see verses that read like really those last few in Revelation in which matters like this are found? Where do we find individuals, beings if you please, that will be engulfed in, immersed in, plunged in fire? Well, we find of course that that's reserved for those subjects that are the, that are the disobedient. May we be quick to say then the baptism of fire is a very vital biblical theme, but it's yet in the future. It is a waiting on the day of judgment for those that are, that are the disobedient, for those that are the unprepared. For those that have not obeyed the Master. Paul, in fact, identified that in conjunction with the revelation, didn't he? In 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 7, To you that are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with fire with His mighty angels. And there we have that statement of fire. There will be a moment then in which there will be a baptism of fire for those on that judgment day that themselves are not ready. What a frightening consideration then to notice that the design, the purpose of this judgment is of course just as we learned in the parable of the tares. 
Those that are prepared and ready will be allowed entrance into the barn of the master. But those that were the tares are bound and burned. It was a judgment upon the fact that they had not fulfilled the calling and purpose God had delivered to them. That judgment, that baptism, then is a matter of separation. It is separating the chaff from the wheat. As you and I think about it from that perspective, we certainly wish no part of the baptism of fire, do we? None of us want to be involved in that one, surely. As you can see, again, this baptism is yet in the future. It awaits a time of concerning the end of time. It awaits those events at the judgment itself. As you come to the next one, what about number five, the baptism of the Holy Spirit? This one is one perhaps that plagues and troubles by way of discussion more in our present world today than these others that we have described heretofore. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. There frankly are many who thankfully are at least under the impression that this one still is, is impressively enforced today. Let's answer our same questions relative to this one. First of all, who is the administrator of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? That is to say, who has the power to deliver or in fact to engage in it? John the Baptist had again said relative to Jesus, The one coming after me who is greater than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose, he will baptize with fire and with the Holy Spirit. Notice John initially asserted that it would be none other than the power of the Godhead himself that would baptize in the Holy Spirit. That wasn't left for man. There isn't a human being on earth, nor ever has there been, who was able to baptize in the Holy Spirit. It is a matter that was bequeathed by virtue of the power of God Himself. Notice the next question. What was the element involved? Again, the name is very suggestive, isn't it? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. There would be occasions then in which individuals would themselves be plunged beneath the power of the Holy Spirit. They would have capabilities that they heretofore had not had. They would have abilities that again was bequeathed to them because of that and that which they had not had before. Look furthermore at these. As far as the biblical evidence suggests, that baptism only occurred twice in all of history. The first time was in Acts chapter 2. We have it there stated in the first four verses of that chapter. Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You notice many occurrences of a pronoun they in that verse. That's going to be a great element of, of significance and meaning to us. For you notice, the subjects on that occasion was the they. Who was it that was baptized in that Holy Spirit? The they was the apostles. And only the apostles. There were twelve of them. Judas had already committed suicide, but Matthias had been appointed to his replacement. Those twelve were baptized in the Holy Spirit. That baptism on that occasion did not come to every believer in Jesus in any form. It was only the twelve. As you and I recognize later in Acts chapter 10, the only other reference we ever have to this in verses 44 and following of Acts chapter 10, 
was a baptism understood by those special individuals of the household of Cornelius. That overwhelming event in which the Gentiles were welcomed into the Christian family. Other than those two, we have no other references of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That led me to say that those subjects then were, were again, those initial statements in Acts chapter 2, those Jews, those apostles I should say, and then those Gentiles that were the first Gentile converts. It is to be noted then that this question readily follows as well. What was the design of this baptism? What purpose did it serve? Maybe that takes us back as far as John chapter 16 when in relation to those apostles Jesus Himself had said, amazingly and with great, great power, about the fact that they would be led into all truth. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He shall guide you into all truth. Jesus didn't say that to you and me today. He said that to those apostles initially. That they, when they were overwhelmed in that power of the Holy Spirit, that they would be guided into all truth. That's the reason that, thankfully, you and I can appreciate that that which we read is the certain truth of God, for they were guided into it by the absolute nature of their baptism in the Holy Spirit. Amazingly, of course, you notice, that baptism is not for you and for me. It is not for human beings in general today. There is no one that could be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That was only for those individuals in that ancient era. And therefore, when some today speak about the baptism of the Holy Spirit in relation to tongues or in relation to other things, they have misinterpreted and misunderstood. One more time, we have found this baptism was not for salvation purposes for those individuals. It was a confirmation matter. So far, one by one, we have found none of these that offer any distinction in terms of contradicting that statement of Paul. There is one baptism. Let's come to the baptism under Jesus Christ, the sixth and final one. Six baptisms we find mentioned in the Bible. And yet Paul could say there is one baptism. Let's use the remaining time to speak about the one. How is it different than all these others? What design and what purpose does it have? And what about the nature of its administration? Look with me like this. We find under the authority of Christ, He said this, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. That text in Matthew 28, verses 18 and following tell us, Jesus told those apostles to go and as a part of that work to baptize. And then we find in the book of Acts that there were individuals who themselves followed suit by preaching with power that same message. We find the administrators were then the disciples of Christ, those who went about doing the thing Jesus had just commanded, to go, to teach, and to baptize. You'll notice that text in Acts twenty-two sixteen. We find an example there where a gentleman named Ananias baptized a man named Paul, and he did so for the remission of his sins. As we look at verses like that one, it brings us to the next obvious question. What was the element or elements? 
Didn't Jesus, as he spoke to Nicodemus, put the final consideration on that? When he said, except you be born again, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. John 3, verses 3 and 4. Even after Nicodemus in his confusion asked about that, Jesus elaborated and said, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. That entrance into the kingdom predicated on water, the marvelous power of the act of baptism. You and I then find as we speak about the nature of those elements, the Holy Spirit is then noticed. It's not that you and I are baptized into that Spirit. It's that that Spirit is an accompanying power and provision of the instruction relative to that baptism. And thus that brings us to the third point. Who is supposed to attend to this? The baptism of fire is for the disobedient. The baptism of John the Baptist were for, were for believing penitent Jews. The baptism of sufferings for, it seems, all Christians. We notice something amazing here. This baptism that you and I have just learned about, this was that key element that made those believers. It made them those servants and Christians. I've stated that like this. These subjects then are intended, of course, to be all, but only some will respond. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And so this is for those that want to be saved. It's for those who, upon their consideration of the matter of the gospel, they believe and attend to that which is contained therein. This one is a predication for salvation. If one isn't believed under the authority, if one doesn't baptize under the authority of Christ, one cannot be saved. Look at this secondary passage in Acts 2.38. Here, even on Pentecost, there were those who said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent and be baptized. Why? For the remission of sins. Their sins were not remitted previous to and without that act of baptism under the authority of Christ. Isn't it amazing then this next statement that the design of this one is so very sweet. Notice it's not in attachment to the suffering of the world. It's not in attachment to that baptism of fire. If you and I wish sins remitted and to be freed from the guilt of them, we must be baptized following this baptism. No wonder Paul said there's one baptism. If a person wishes to be saved, he or she must be baptized as described here. We've learned the elements water. One must be immersed in water for the remission of sins. But notice this idea. It is in this baptism we see a beautiful attachment to Christ Himself. Romans 6 beginning in verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? There is a statement in which just like Christ died on the cross in baptism, we die to the old man of sin. Not only that, just as Christ was resurrected the third day, we are resurrected to a new life in Jesus. We reenact in a very real way those critical elements in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. In the same way that Jesus was buried, we too are buried. A person is plunged beneath water in an act of burial. And in that way, what a tremendous association is found. Beyond that, we might appreciate this. This act of baptism is called the operation of God, Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. 
Notice again that though there may be a man officiate at it, holding the person as that person is immersed in water, it really is the operation of God when that person's sins are forgiven. I don't have the power to forgive sins. Our elders don't have that power. No man has that power. For sin is not an affront to my will. It's an affront to God's will. 1 John 3, 4. The operation of God. Every time you and I have the privilege of witnessing a baptism, may we then appreciate that God is operating, cutting out the sin in that person's life and forever removing it. Those sins are completely forgiven and forgotten. That's a matter of great, great power, isn't it? You perhaps notice one final thing. This baptism is for today, for it has been given by virtue of commandment to all in this present era and shall last until the end of time. Those words of the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. We see one more time that belief in baptism, critical elements separating the saved from the damned. And so if you and I expect to be saved, if we wish to be saved, we must be baptized. No wonder we lay this emphasis and this consideration upon this one baptism. And with it, why don't we close our lesson? We've studied about the doctrine of baptism from Hebrews 6 verse 2. And in that, we've looked at six special baptisms mentioned in the Bible. We found that some of them were for days past, back in the Old Testament era, or the days of John the Baptist. Some of them are yet waiting the end of time, like the baptism of fire. There is one baptism needful for salvation today. It's the baptism under the authority of Jesus Christ. Have you attended to that? Have you been baptized for the remission of your sins? If you have not, why not today? Why not this 13th day of July, 2014? We'd be happy to assist you, to help you, to be with you. Believe me, as you walk down the aisle, there's a moment of nervousness perhaps. But I will assure you, as you have faithful individuals waiting to assist you in every aspect of your getting ready in the back, it's a painless activity. And what an eternal blessing is yours. If you have attended to that, though, but you haven't been faithful, you've walked away from your first love, you no longer are living the way you know you should, why not come back to that love today? The Master is waiting for you to stand faithfully at His side and to reign with Him, as we learn in 1 Corinthians 6. If you need to come back to that initial status of faithfulness, why not do it? Now, it's not that you need to be rebaptized. For the New Testament tells us there all that's needful is your confession, your repentance, and the prayers of brethren on your behalf. If you would repent and confess, we'll be happy to pray for you and also pray with you. If today we could help you in either of these ways, won't you let us know? And why not even come while together we stand and sing the selected song?